HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Welcome to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. This week, we're looking at all things competition, from eating contests to neighboring Indian restaurants fighting for customers to new tractors in a farming video game. We begin with a story from Pauline Munch about the science of competitive eating. We might all be familiar with speed eating contests, where people eat as much as they can, as fast as they can. But there's more to understand. To learn about the ins and the outs, we turn to Dr. David Metz, a gastroenterologist at the University of Pennsylvania. In 2007, he and a team of doctors and researchers conducted an experiment to understand how competitive eaters can eat such amazing amounts. They used x-rays to compare the stomachs of a champion speedy eater and a normal individual during a simulated hot dog eating contest. So looking at the speed eaters, the idea was, well, they're going to have the reverse sort of situation. They're going to have a stomach that didn't expand to the size of a, you know, Texas just to get all these hot dogs in. And as expected, the, the normal individual, I think, had about eight hot dogs and was ready to burst. The speed eater, I think, got into the 30s, had an enormous, wide, big, open stomach sack that just had all these hot dogs sitting there. And he didn't feel any discomfort. In fact, was willing to go on. But we stopped him because once we made it clear what was going on, we didn't need to do any, any further testing. The researchers found that the speed eater's stomach had a unique ability to relax, allowing the food to fit and then slowly digest the food mass over time. But it remains unclear whether speed eaters are born with these sorts of stomachs or if this ability can be trained. Due to the small scale of the experiment, Dr. Metz couldn't give a definite answer. So, for a first-hand perspective, we turn to Crazy Legs Conti, a major league eater with 17 years of experience. He holds the world record for eating five and a half pounds of buffet food in 12 minutes. He has traveled the world and appeared on several documentaries and used to co-host the show Eating Disorders on HRN. Crazy Legs points to the skills of other major league eaters, including the infamous Joey Chestnut. I firmly believe that physiologically and mentally and really spiritually, Takara Kobayashi and uh, Sonia the Black Widow Thomas 
something in their bodies and minds uh, made them great competitive eaters already. It was inherent. But for Joey, you know, Joey, I think, is an example of a guy who's just propelled beyond the limitations of the human body because he has the capacity to push himself um, every day, all day, day in and day out, year after year. Not only that, but training is intense and not in the way that you might think. The truth is I watch what I eat now to be, be a better competitive eater. I took up yoga to be able to eat more hot dogs, which of course probably offends yogis everywhere, but I do, you know, alternate nostril breathing before a contest. I use a neti pot. I, I do a lot of things you're supposed to do in your normal healthful life, but I do them just so I can eat more uh, food at the competitive eating table, which seems maybe um, like an oxymoron, but uh, eaters are in pretty great shape these days. But even if you prepare like mad or are born with a flexible stomach, there can be side effects. And warning, this part can get a little graphic. The danger of stretching up the stomach to a, a level that it, you, you cannot tolerate, there is a potential risk for rupture. There is a potential risk for rupture of the esophagus as well. Uh, nausea and vomiting is certainly not fun and can be, you know, can also have its other uh, problems like tearing the lining of the esophagus. But Crazy Legs maintains that safety is a priority and warns against any home training. He says the only way to get involved or to improve your skills is by competing in official contests. But even with these high safety standards, Crazy Legs still has some concerns for the future. So you're only competitively eating, say, 25 times a year. How does that affect your health 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I mean, we know football, the NFL, is bad for your head in the long run. Um, is competitive eating bad for your stomach? Uh, my enteric brain, the gut, says that no, it's not, because you can go back and become a casual diner. But this is only the start. Once you bite into the world of competitive eating, you begin to wonder about the bigger implications. Is it really okay for these competitions to celebrate consumption, especially within our unbalanced food system? They're evil, the evil of the universe. <laughs> they cause all these problems, world hunger, obesity. Now, I have had people protest, and I'm always happy to have a dialogue. So next time you catch a glimpse of a speed-eating contest, you might think twice about just how intense the competition really is. And be sure to remember this advice from Dr. Mintz. So it sounds like it's a fun thing, and I think it is, and it, the people enjoy it, but I would just be wary to not try it at home and to realize that there are potential risks. Have you ever wondered how chicken became the United States' number one meat? Here's Aaliyah Papes on the lasting influence of a 1948 chicken raising contest. In 1943, U.S. farmers raised around 251 million meat chickens over the course of the year. In 2017, we raised around three times that amount every month. So the number of chickens slaughtered for meat is now 36 times what it was in 1943 while the human population hasn't even tripled. Not only are we producing more meat chickens, there's more meat on each of them. Those 1943 meat chickens, also known as broilers, they grew to around 3 pounds in 12 weeks. Today, broilers grow to 6.3 pounds in less than 7 weeks. That's twice as big in about half the time. To understand how we got more and bigger chickens, there's a very important competition you have to understand. The 1948 Chicken of Tomorrow contest. The Chicken of Tomorrow. A broad-breasted bird with bigger drumsticks, plumper thighs, 
and layers of white meat like the wax model on the right. Today's meat chickens are the result of the decades of breeding experiments launched by the USDA contest. A&P offered $10,000 in cash prizes, $5,000 for the national champions. A&P, which was, you know, the big supermarket at that time, uh, got the idea to try and produce a, a better chicken, for a better chicken in the context for feeding people. This is poultry geneticist Dr. Paul Siegel. Uh, I'm Paul Siegel, University Distinguished Emeritus Professor in Genetics at Virginia Polytechnic Institute. In 2010, he was also inducted into the Poultry Historical Society's Hall of Fame. They had set up the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, which was part of the USDA and some of the state agencies. And they were going to run a contest among various breeders that could enter their stocks into this contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken of tomorrow, which would be a meat-type chicken. Today, most farmers raise specific breeds for egg production and others for meat. But back then, the meat-type chicken was still a pretty new idea. Because up until that time, pretty much, the meat-type chickens were the surplus from the egg chickens. Starting in 1946, breeders from across the country competed in state, then regional, then national contests before the winning chickens were crowned in 1948. Dr. Siegel was a teenager then, growing up on his family's 32-acre farm in Connecticut. And I was a 4-H kid, and uh, they said, well, you know, let's involve these young people, and I will call it a junior chicken and tomorrow contest. Mm-hmm. And so I entered the junior chicken and tomorrow contest, and I had my own flock, and lo and behold, I won. After that first successful breeding project, he was hooked. He went on to study genetics, but that looked very different at the time. In fact, when I took genetics in 1950 at UConn, in the textbook, we just did it a couple weeks ago, we looked at the textbook that I had in 1950 in genetics, and in the index was not even the you could not you couldn't look up in the index DNA. Chicken took off after the Chicken of Tomorrow contest. As it did, our understanding of genetics also grew, and power in the breeding industry became increasingly consolidated. So you had the you had the hatcheries, and you had uh, the 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 breeders, but there were a lot of breeders. And then what happened is it became more and more sophisticated. Then one one breeder would buy out another breeder, or others would go out of business, and it, it became just like anything else. A narrowing down to a few successful ones though, who had the capital to expand. Today, just two companies, Aviagen and Cobb Vantress, oversee the vast majority of the world's primary breeding stock for chickens. Those companies cross multiple breeds multiple times to produce the complex hybrids that we end up eating. The specifics are a trade secret, but we do know that it takes five generations to get there. The first three would be with the primary breeder. The fourth would be with the one that does the parent flock, and then you have the one that then goes to the consumer. To be clear, Dr. Siegel doesn't actually do research for the broiler industry. His work is academic and independent, and he doesn't receive funding from any poultry industry companies. What people do with his research is up to them. Dr. Siegel's breeding work today focuses on another kind of competition, genetic resource allocation. I'm interested primarily in the complex of where resources are going when we select. So this, the resources that an individual has 
are finite. If they're going to go one way, they have to. There's no free lunch. So we may do experiments where we're selecting for growth, large body size, small body size. And then what's happening to the other traits? What Dr. Siegel's work explains is that in order to get something like a faster growth rate from chickens' genetics, you also have to give something up. We can see it in the way chickens are raised today. Most live in concentrated animal feeding operations, also known as factory farms. There, chickens grow so large so fast that they often have trouble walking. They're not suited to living outdoors or foraging for food. Most can't live past the age when they're usually slaughtered, about six to seven weeks. After that age, they'd likely die from heart attacks or skeletal problems. And many people argue that while we've won the race to produce chickens with a lot of meat, we've lost track of flavor along the way. Still, there are important benefits. Oh, I, I think the important thing that we've seen is the improvement of converting plant to animal protein, feed efficiency. Greater feed efficiency and bigger birds means we can raise more meat for more people using fewer resources. That's been very, very important. And there's been, you know, selection for efficient utilization of feed. And uh, with a growing population, then it's very, very important that they become more and more efficient. Of course, it was more than just genetics that changed chicken. It was also new feed formulas, vaccines for poultry diseases, and the creative use of antibiotics. But for better or for worse, without the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, we wouldn't have the chicken of today. The question now is what comes next? In the last few decades, less red meat has been eaten in the United States, but the numbers for chicken have gone up. Are feed efficiency and fast growth rates still our priorities? Are those priorities the only way to feed the world, if the world wants to eat chicken? Or is there another way to allocate our resources, to take all we've learned about chicken genetics and use it to improve flavor, animal welfare, and sustainability? With all that we've learned since 1948, does a better chicken mean something different in 2019? More Meat in 3 after the break. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Do you love this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. We have over 35,000 shows in our online library. My name is Jennifer Leutzi, and I'm the host of Tech Bites, where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. You can find Tech Bites wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Meet and Three. For our next story, Dylan Hoyer takes us to the East Village, where a brightly lit storefront is the site of an intense battle over Indian food enthusiasts. I recently left work early and headed from HRN's office to the East Village, where I hoped to beat the rush at a popular spot for dinner. When I arrived, I was greeted with a squabble. My destination, a small two-story building, 
is not only home to one restaurant, but to three, Panatu, Milan, and Royal. Each Indian restaurant with a BYOB policy and colorful Christmas lights that can be seen through the windows. You might think this would be confusing and you wouldn't be alone according to reviews on Yelp. The entrance is a bit odd. Be sure to go up the stairs to the intended restaurant because there are several hosts of surrounding restaurants below and to the side of Panatu that try to intercept you. Beware! My friend and I wanted to go to Panatu, but there was a man outside and directed us here instead, telling us it was the same thing. Pay attention to the signs. These restaurants are each independent establishments, and the competition between them has been going strong for decades. I wanted to know how it all started, so I began my investigation at Panatu, where the owner, Bashir Khan, informed me that his family opened the restaurant in 1975 and hung its first iconic lights in the early 90s. Like 1990, 89 or 90, we did it on like holiday times, like on Christmas times. And we leave it until January, and people love it. And then we keep adding it, adding it, and then it's come out like this because it's something different. The ceiling is now covered in thousands of low-hanging, intertwined rainbow bulbs. The restaurant is relatively small. Imagine a railroad-style apartment. There's enough room for about 10 tables packed together with a narrow aisle going down the middle. If you have to walk to the back of the restaurant to find a bathroom, it's not a bad idea to duck your head. This place was the original one with the lighting, chili pepper lights, and um, it's something different from any other restaurant in Indian restaurant. For first-time diners, Panatu offers an exciting and Instagrammable atmosphere. But on this corner of Manhattan, there's little that's unique about it. When I visited Milan, the restaurant next door, they had the same chili pepper-shaped lights and a similar claim to make about the restaurant's originality. So this restaurant actually is like the best Indian in the east side. And that's oldest, this is the oldest restaurant. We have more lights. We have more lights, more fun. That's Abdul Aldoud, a waiter at Milan. According to the restaurant's website, it was founded after Panatu, but you won't hear these rivals agree on anything. Here's Bashir from Panatu. Let's say in a couple of hours, if you are downstairs and next to a restaurant, nobody's there. This place will be packing like in an hour. It's going to be a lot of people inside there. They, they, usually they wait for my restaurant, Panatu, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs because it's a, it's a long wait. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. As I had now learned to expect, Abdul told a different story. Yeah, the most of the people come here. This contest might seem relentless to an outsider, but these restaurants are on friendlier terms than they let on. A New York Times article from 1999 reports that Bashir's parents bought Panatu from a man named Malik Ahmed, whose nephew owned Milan. Whether they are in fact competitors or are in cahoots, these warring restaurants are definitely masters of marketing. For our final story this week, Kevin Wheeler reports on a new trend in video games, one that surprisingly involves tractors. If you're a fan of professional video gaming and farming, you may have heard that Farming Simulator is getting a league of its own. 
Farming Simulator is a game known mostly for its thorough recreation of farm management, where the main objective is more often to get a good yield as opposed to beating some opponent. Yes, Farming Simulator is going competitive, at least to some degree. The Farming Simulator League will only be touring Europe for now, but despite the distance between myself and the agricultural action, I wanted to talk to some players, wanted to find out why they play, and what excites them. In my research, I found a robust online community of players, and Mike Bailey is one of them. He lives in Philadelphia, drives trucks for a living, and he plays Farming Simulator in his spare time. My biggest satisfaction is sit there and just running a dairy farm and selling milk after after the cattle after the cows have made their milk or just buying a whole a whole lot more cattle just for even more milk um so that's my biggest satisfaction is just put everything I do in the game and seeing it come out in the end and work perfectly. Mike started playing back in twenty sixteen He had already been a fan of other sim games like American Truck Simulator but he was especially interested in the challenge that running a farm seemed to present, and he hasn't looked back. Last year came another announcement, one that has received less fanfare than the Farming Simulator League, but still sent shockwaves through the Farming Simulator community. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. Until the release of Farming Simulator 19, John Deere did not officially exist in the Farming Simulator universe. There were German brands like Fendt and Einbach, and even other American brands like Case IH, but not John Deere. When you think of farms, you think John Deere automatically. That green and yellow, that's the first thing that comes to mind with the John Deere. That's one of the big reasons why I did buy Farm Sim 17, which is I did want to play the John Deere. Unfortunately, back in when that game came out, Giants didn't have the licensings for it. By the time Farming Simulator 19 came out, John Deere was well aware of the calls to include its products in the series. Well, I think it was the right time in that uh, we were trying to be very responsive to our customers and our brand fans. That's Dean Hamke, a global category manager at John Deere. He handles product licensing of the John Deere brand for toys and games. He said that John Deere received well over a thousand suggestions, mostly through Facebook, that their equipment should be included in Farming Simulator. Everything you could imagine for people to contact John Deere, they were coming in and asking the question of why John Deere being the largest agricultural equipment uh, company in the world, why we weren't involved with farms, and they wanted us there, including a lot of our own employees. Many farming simulator players are farmers themselves. Unlike Mike, who does not farm but is a fan of the brand, these players wanted to be able to use the same equipment they use in their real lives. A lot of it was our current customers, even some of our larger customers that that own a lot of John Deere equipment, um, were saying, you know, it's a shame I work with John Deere equipment all day um, out in the field, and then I want to come and I want to play farm sim, and I, and I have to use a, a piece of equipment that's not like mine. The first farming simulator game came out in 2008, though John Deere has only been a part of the franchise since late 2018. Dean said that there had been concern about how the equipment would be used or portrayed. Would a tractor be able to move faster than it should, or be put in environments a tractor would normally never be in, like on certain hillsides? These fears were eventually allayed by the amount of care and detail John Deere saw in Giant Software's product. So much so that John Deere saw the game as a window into what farming is really like. This game gives the, that insight of what farmers are tackling every day, and they're tackling it with innovation through us and each other to, 
to drive sort of the idea that it's going to take brains more than brawn at this point. And we have to become very productive with limited resources. And this game sort of shows that. And we get people engaged with that. And now they have a better understanding of the entire industry that, boy, farmers aren't just, um, you know, the old McDonald had a farm anymore. Mike especially learned a lot about running a dairy farm from Farming Simulator. So, of course, just by playing the game, I'm not going to become the world's best farmer, but you kind of have an understanding of what kind of goes on on a farm and stuff. You have people like me who are who live in a city. We don't really we we don't see farms, and we play this game. And I'm actually learning a lot about farming and stuff by playing this game. And you can too, if you're interested in starting your own virtual farm behind the comfort of a screen. Farming Simulator is available for PC and all major video game consoles. With John Deere equipment now in the mix, that experience is more comprehensive of the farming experience than ever. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Dylan Hoyer, Aaliyah Papes, Pauline Munch, and Kevin Wheeler for their reporting. We'd also like to thank the Prelinger Archives for archival tape used in this episode. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson, with lead production for this episode by Kevin Wheeler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York State Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 